Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me welcome you to uh, the nerve center of the theological universe, the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, for our uh, casual conversation series. And so this morning's casual conversation, as you know, is on the relationship between Christianity, politics, and public life. So first, let me introduce our guests. I want to start with Stephen Harris, uh, right here in this corner. Stephen is the Director of Advocacy for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He did a Bachelor of Science from Vanderbilt University, an MDiv from Southern, and an MA in Religion from Yale University. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. And what does a Director of Advocacy actually do? Yeah, so my role is is really confined to the space of uh, congressional uh, actors, members and staffers and White House staff. So every day I'm having meetings with one of those players talking about particular evangelical convictions and positions that we support with regard to policies uh, and and other things. And so uh, that's my daily routine. I'm out and about uh, in members' offices trying to uh, persuade and convince according Mm -hmm. to uh, biblical principles. Uh, just two days ago, I was in Speaker Ryan's office talking about mass incarceration. So, and you do a good bit of writing. You create content. So uh, you've you've got a, a full calendar. <coughs> yeah, I think. Yeah. Welcome to campus. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, next, we've got Jonathan Lehman. Now, Jonathan is uh, no stranger to the campus here at Southeastern, and doesn't need uh, you know much of an introduction. He did a PhD at the University of Wales. Now, do not let appearances fool you. He is very smart. He, uh, I'm, not, I'm not as dumb as I look. <laughs> He's an elder at uh, um, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He is the editorial director for Nine Marks Journal and for the book series and is the author of a book that is going to be published uh, here very soon, Political Church, a Local Assembly as Embassy of Christ's Rule. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, that book. What are you trying to say in the book and, and also how can we access it? When will it be published. Yeah, sure. It's coming out in the next month. It'll be available in March. I think the little handout that uh, was handed out gives you a discount code that you can go ahead and order it now. But basically, the book has two arguments. Uh, Number one, it's trying to reconceive of the map between religion and politics. Uh, Within the liberal tradition, we see religion and politics as as, uh, separable things, and I'm arguing that no, they're not separable. They're distinct, but they're inseparable. So I redraw the map, and then I ask the question, okay, what is the local church as an institution on that map? W- where does it fit in and, and relative to the state? So in, in that sense, it's, it's kind of a church-state discussion. Uh, and I'm trying to do all of this from a ground up. I'm trying to do a political theology from the ground up using scripture and then in conversation with political theorists and political theologians and historical and present. You picked, uh, I mean, you really went to meddling. You're going to make some people angry. Yeah. <laughs> so, looking forward to reading the book. Uh, welcome welcome uh, back you, to, uh, to campus. And then uh, finally, uh, Hunter Baker. So Hunter holds both a Juris Doctorate from the University of Houston and a PhD in Religion and Politics from Baylor University. He is Associate Professor of Political Science at Union University, where he is also a University Fellow. So can you tell us what a university fellow is? Yeah, I mean, it's just... Um, like a uni- university chap. Yeah, university fellow at, at Union is, is for faculty members, um, especially who uh, have an opportunity to kind of um, influence the public hmm. in certain ways. Uh, we are terribly, terribly interested in religious liberty right now okay. at Union. I mean, first of all, that's part of the, the Baptist heritage and the Baptist emphasis, but also because... That's kind of the crisis of the moment. Um, I had previously been one of the uh, deans at Union and associate provost, and I just, uh, I just felt that it was very important to uh, to stop spending so much time on administration and to spend more time on religious liberty. Mm. So that's why. Yeah. So you're very modest about it. Uh, So university fellow basically is franchise player. Union has tapped Hunter as franchise player, 
and he serves as a public theologian, public intellectual for them, and really grateful for Hunter and for his work. He's got several books that he's published. I would recommend a, a, a tiny little book called Political Thought, A Student's Guide. It's very easy to read, very well written. And then also he's got a bigger book, The System Has a Soul. It deals a lot with uh, religious, religious liberty. Um, he is the associate editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and is a contributing editor for Touchstone Magazine. So, Hunter, welcome to campus. So good to have you here. Thank you. So the 2016 election cycle is, has been a real carnival. I'm 41 years old. I have never seen anything like this, in anything even close to it. Uh, so far, we've had presidential candidates who are conservatives, progressives, nationalists, libertarians, <laughs> socialists, and we've even had some rhetoric that's borderline fascist. Uh, here comes everybody. And then there is the circumambient imbecility of a certain sector of the American populace. That there is a certain uh, sector, fairly large apparently, includes political pundits, citizens, and even candidates who have created sort of a toxic environment. Um, <clears throat> And metaphorically speaking, and sometimes literally, are walking into the public square sort of yelling and sweating, uh, you know, shouting, uh, demonizing each other. So in the middle of all this, you've got some Christians who have withdrawn, said that politics is evil stuff. I don't want to dirty my hands. You even, we'll talk about this later. There's some religious leaders who have said that you know, Christians shouldn't be involved, especially um, uh, public Christians shouldn't be involved. Uh, you've got some who have withdrawn just because they're frustrated. You know, things have gone so bad, I just quit. I'm taking my marbles and going home. You've got others who have thrown themselves into it with sort of a messianic fervor. And uh, let me just ask the first question. Hunter, I'll direct it to you to, to start out with. Should American citizens who are Christians consider politics and public life an important sphere to interact in? Should we get involved? <clears throat> Yeah, you know, and first I just want to say real quickly, you talked about the kind of the poisonous atmosphere which turns people off and makes people want to, to stop participating. I think that, that part of the reason that's happening is, is that uh, we have become so inc incredibly pluralistic, right? We have so many different beliefs and never before have we had uh, so much ability to kind of self-reinforce our own beliefs, mm. right? So like, right. you know, on Facebook or talk radio yeah. Yeah. or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And so whoever you are, you can find a nice core of people to say, you're right, you're right, you're that's right, right? right. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's part of what's going on. And, and at the same time, as pleasant as that <clears throat> is, <clears throat> it is unpleasant, even <clears throat> physically unpleasant to have yeah. someone say that you're wrong, Right? You know, yeah. You can, <laughs> you can or to, feel or to it, post right? a comment on Facebook and have somebody uh, put uh, 10 comments in a row in all capitals with exclamation marks uh, demonizing uh, the people they disagree with. Or, right, yeah, just, exactly. It's crazy. Right. And so, you know, you can, you can actually feel that. Um, but in terms of our involvement, um, you know, a lot of people will, will look at the, the Bible and they'll say, well, look, I mean, it's just that Christians simply have to um, obey whoever the, the ruling authority is, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a handbook for political activism, right? But, um, but at least let me speak to the American context. Uh, in, our, in our context, the, the people uh, sort of have the sovereignty, right, of the, of the American system. And so all of, that, all of that sovereignty of our system, all that power, that's divided up right? Yep. Between all of us, right? And so in the same way that, uh, that you would have stewardship for the money that you have or for your relationships, think you have stewardship for your politics, for your political activity. And, you know, I, I think that that should be under the lordship of Christ, just like everything else. Uh, hmm. And that you should, you should take that very seriously. You should inform yourself, you should participate uh, and, and try to bring kind of a, a kingdom worldview to your politics. Okay, that's good. Stephen, what do you, what do you say when uh, somebody from your church comes up <laughs> to you and says, you know, I've got a pretty crowded schedule and a busy life and not interested in politics anyway, don't think I should be involved? Yeah, I, I, I would say that not only is there a should, but I think there's, there's a must, uh, kind of harping off of what um, Hunter just said. I mean, yes, so as a democratic republic, right, the people are endowed with the kind of power to 
uh, wade into this space and have their views represented via elected uh, re- officials. And so as citizens, um, Christian citizens particularly, we have, I think, the responsibility to wade into that space as well, bringing our worldview in tow um, and, and influencing that conversation, of course, as we view government as something sovereignly ordained by God anyway. And so, yeah, I think there, there's a must involved there um, because in a sense we, we, we're bearing responsibility in how we remind uh, these individuals in these spaces of their God-given uh, role and responsibility. Jonathan, you agree uh, with these guys? Yeah, absolutely. Let me, let, me, let me start with my qualification, then let me give you my okay. hearty yes. Okay. The qualification is we have different stewardships, different callings. You know, my, yep. my wife's at home right now with four young daughters. I wouldn't want to burden her conscience with various forms yeah. of political activity yeah. that the Lord is just not calling her yeah. to at this point. Okay, with, with those qualifications of calling and stewardship in mind, a hearty yes for four reasons, I would say. Uh, uh, obedience, justice, love, redemption. Obedience, justice, love, redemption. Obedience, rendering to Caesar in a democratic environment mm-hmm. means getting engaged and, and acting. We are Caesar in that sense. Uh, and, and to render to Caesar is to, is to be engaged in a democratic context. Or I'd go back to Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. I think there's a universal call in the concerns of justice in that passage. So obedience, justice, government exists for the sake of justice. I think of 1 Corinthians 3.28, and the people were amazed that God had given wisdom to Solomon for the doing of justice. Or Proverbs 29.4, by justice the king builds up the land and we're called to do justice for love love our neighbors ourselves and the interest of justice and then finally redemption uh, Genesis 9 and the establishing of government comes before Genesis 12 for a reason we need the protection of society so that God's plan of redemption can carry itself out or, or, or I'm thinking of, of, of verses like pulling up on my iPhone here uh, verses like uh, Acts 1726, and he made one man from every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having a determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should feel, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Or I think even more compelling, uh, you might think of uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for everyone for kings all those in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Why do we want good government? Why do we care about religious freedom? Because we want people to be saved. To get to church, I need a civil society so that the marauders don't molest me and the the bandits don't bludgeon me, right? Yeah. So, for I think those four reasons, we Christians should care about politics. I want to go back to your caveat. So, let's take your wife, for example, four, four daughters, right? Yeah. Very busy. Oh, yep. I mean, anyone who has uh, four children knows. So, for someone like her or for someone whose workplace takes 50 or 60 hours of their week, and so they're going to be more minimally involved than someone who is, for example, a political scientist or a uh, policy advocate at e- ERLC, mm-hmm. what are some ways to contribute to the common good publicly? Just a sort of organic and natural ways or intentional ways right. to do that. I think the most obvious biblical way is to pray. Mm. Pray for the president. Pray for the Senate. Pray for the House. Pray for judges. Pray for public school teachers and administrators. Pray for, for uh, the various authorities in our lives. I, I, I think everybody, every Christian should be doing that in their personal and in their corporate prayer life together. Uh, obviously, watching the news, getting informed, getting educated, and then I think there's something of a moral imperative to vote uh, as part of rendering to Caesar. So my wife, as busy as she is, votes. She gets informed and she votes. Um, praying, voting, those are the first things that come to mind, but happy to have... Bruce, can I add something yeah, sure. real quick? The, um, the other thing that, uh, related to that, I, if you look at even, even Congress... All right, Congress is full of people who are ostensibly politically informed, right, we hope. Uh, and um, even, even with people like that, okay, um, they can't be experts in everything. Yep. And so there's a sense in which uh, they find out, right, who, who really knows and understands a particular issue, 
and then they'll follow that person, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's a good model for, for us as well, right? I mean, um, you know, yes, I mean, it may be overly burdensome for a lot of people to say, I'm going to follow politics at the same level that somebody like, 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 like yeah. you know, me does, right? Um, but you can invest the effort to find out, you know, who, who can I trust, right? Who can I trust? Who can I listen to? And maybe kind of guide your efforts. Render unto Caesar. So, you know, they came to Jesus and said, here's this coin and, and here's uh, Caesar. What do we give to him? What do we give to God? And so Jesus said, you know, give to Caesar what's his and give unto God what is his. And so my interpretation of that is that, uh, you know, give to Caesar whatever is his, taxes and so forth, but don't you ever give to him what is due to God, and that is your ultimate allegiance. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. So as I see it, you know, that does uh, not only rope Christians into being involved in politics and public life, it means that, as I see it, we should bring our Christianity into it. So what do you think of that? Should Christians uh, counsel our, our people here in the chapel who are live streaming or watching this recorded, should we bring our Christianity into public discussion, God's saving works and word, or should we sort of back off from that and only use more neutral language? You yeah, know? sure. Great question. Uh, notice how Jesus begins that passage. He says, whose portrait, whose inscription, whose image is it? And Don Carson makes the observation that Caesar's image is on the coin, but Caesar is created in God's image. Mm. Everything that belongs to Caesar belongs to God. Mm. It's not two completely separate circles, Caesar stuff, God's stuff. That's not what's going on. That's how we interpret it, but that's not what's going on there. I think what you have is a big circle, God's stuff, and inside of it, a little circle, Caesar stuff. It's a good way to put it. Right? uh, Richard John Newhouse made, made, you know, famously made the point that, that the public square shouldn't be naked, that is, mere or bare of religious beliefs. I, I would go a step further and say it can't be naked. I don't think you can separate your religion from your politics. I don't think anybody does. I think the public square is a battleground of God's, where each of us are there defending our own set of assumptions about what should be right and what should be wrong. So... Whether it's me, or the secularist, or the Jew, or the Hindu, everything I would do in the public square has a set of moral assumptions behind it, a set of anthropological assumptions, what is man, a set of moral assumptions, what's right and what's wrong, and behind that, necessarily a set of theological assumptions. The Christian, the secularist alike, and I go into the public square, and I can't separate myself from those assumptions. Whether we're talking about abortion, homosexuality, health care, funding for national parks. It's, it's all based on a certain set of assumptions. So, you know, I think the reason this is so tough for some people to wrap their minds around is, so on the one hand, you have somebody like John Rawls, mm-hmm. probably arguably the most influential political philosopher in the Anglo-American world, who argued that we should, in relation to public issues, hide ourselves behind a veil of ignorance Mm -hmm. and pretend that we don't know who we are Mm -hmm. in terms of socioeconomic status, but also, and even more importantly, in terms of the thickness and particularity of who we are religiously. But then on the other hand, you have religious conservatives, like uh, a president of a a large Christian university here recently just stated flat out, (laughs) keep your religion out of the political realm. And uh, so you have voices from all around us, secular and Christian, who say, keep your religion out of it. Um, Hunter? Yeah. The, um, uh, I actually, um, in one of the books you didn't mention, which is The End of Secularism, uh, the, I write about this because um, <clears throat> let's, just, let's just imagine that this president of a large Christian university is, is Jerry Falwell, Jr., um, the, <clears throat> which, which I'm, not, I'm not coming to criticize, right? I've spoken there. Uh, it's an amazing place. But, um, but when, when Jerry Falwell, the elder, uh, became a very prominent um, public pastor and, and, and to some degree a leader in politics, um, one of the things that he had to deal with was his own record. He had, uh, during the Civil Rights era and the Cold War era, you know, he had said... Uh, I do not bring uh, I do not bring politics into my preaching. Not even issue politics. Not forget candidates. Not even issues. I don't preach about the Cold War. I don't preach about race relations. That's the wrong thing to do. But uh, 
when he became politically active, he flatly repented of that view. Flatly repented of it, as clear as can be. I heard him repent of it on national public radio. I mean, he repented of it. Um, <clears throat> and now we have the son coming around and saying that, uh, that politics and, and religion are these, these totally separate things, contrary to what you've been saying, which I, I think he's wrong about. Um, but the other thing is, is that, is that as he uh, endorses Donald Trump, um, one of the things that I understand that he's saying to people is, well, if you, if you needed a surgeon for your child, if you needed a plumber for your house, you would not seek the best Christian surgeon or the best Christian plumber. You would just seek the best surgeon or plumber. Um, and I can, I can kind of see that, but uh, politics is not like fixing the toilet uh, or sewing up a patient, right? Politics mm, has, that's, there's that's, a lot of... That's tweetable. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of meaning, right? There's, it matters what you think. It matters what you believe in politics, right? Uh, and so, you know, you, the, politics is not in any way kind of a cold and sterile activity. Now, and you know what? And let's just say the doctors, I, how many doctors have, have prayed and, you know, and, and thought and, you know, and brought their faith to their preparation, but let's leave that aside. The fact is, is that, is that politics is absolutely inseparable, from these larger questions of meaning. And you, you cannot hire a mercenary in politics. Hunter, are you saying working toilets don't matter? I No. no. <laughs> I defend that as well. Well, you know, it's interesting. I but there is a difference, right, between something <laughs> that's sure. very technical craft, right? Sure. Yeah. So let's go directly into, let me just ask you, we've already really been circling around this, this uh, topic, but I want to uh, just, Hunter, what is, what is an appropriate, we live in a democratic republic, Mm -hmm. in uh, 21st century uh, United States of America, how would you state uh, an appropriate relationship between church and state? That's not the same question as religion and politics. It's different. And what are some inappropriate relationships? Yeah, um, this is one of, my, one of my hobby horses. I have a stable of hobby horses, and this is one of them. Um, the, uh, we talk a lot about the separation of church and state, right? <clears throat> and a lot of times candidates will will make hay among Christians kind of by saying that um, the Constitution has no separation. Of, you know, it doesn't say anything about a separation of church and state. I think that actually it, it clearly does. Um, but the question is, what does that mean? What, what does it mean? And, uh, and if we really understood what it meant, then we would not get all upset about it. The problem is, is that the court misinterprets it. Politicians misinterpret it. Uh, you know, various bureaucratic officials misinterpret it. The separation of church and state simply means that there is an institutional separation of church and state, okay? So um, our preachers are not bureaucrats in the department of God, right? Yep. <laughs> They're not, that's, that's what that means, that we don't, um, you know, people tithe, they don't pay taxes that are tithes, right? Things yep. like that. There's not a formal legal link. Uh, the state does not dictate that all the people of North Carolina must be Presbyterians or something like that. That's what the separation of church and state is. What has happened is we have translated the separation of church and state into secularism. Yeah. We have turned that concept into secularism, meaning that, uh, that religion is supposed to be segregated off, you know, cabined off from the rest of society. That's the mistake, and that's what we rebel against. The way, yeah. the way, I, would, the way I would say it is... The separation of religion, of church and state, which I think we would all affirm as separate institutional authorities, is not the same thing as the separation of religion and politics. That's right. Th That's those, right. those are yeah. different things. We tend to, in our jurisprudence and in our philosophizing, we tend to conflate them, but those are separate things. One is the power of the sword. One is the power of the keys. Those are different powers, different institutional authorities. Both have religious and political presuppositions yep. in, 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 in their activities. So we need just, to keep those to conversations say, separate. That concept of keeping religion out of politics, it's very convenient for wor worldly powers. Well, that's right. Right? I mean, worldly powers, basically, they, they don't want to, you know, worldly powers want to make the law, and then you observe the law, right? Whatever it is, right? Yep. They make the law, you observe the law, but... <clears throat> as long as there is this appeal to heaven, as John Locke wrote, you know, the appeal to heaven, right? You know, uh, yeah. an appeal to God. Um, and in fact, that's what, uh, that's what Martin Luther King Jr. does in Letter from Birmingham Jail, yep. right? 
there is a higher authority. An unjust law is no law at all, right? Um, so as long as, as, long as that, that fundamentally religious appeal is out there, the worldly authorities can never be that secure uh, in terms of their own power. You know, so I think one of the problems um, <clears throat> is, is the wrong definition of what religion is. And uh, we, we see this in the religious, the um, sort of narrowing of religious liberty right now, that, uh, that uh, freedom of religion is increasingly being defined as freedom, of, freedom for one to worship God privately in the inner recesses of one's heart. And so that view of religion is sort of a view where religion is the belief in a supernatural deity. And what in the world would a supernatural deity, who's mythical anyway, have to do with our common life together? So keep him out of it. If you want to do that at home or in your little church, go ahead and do that. But the Bible defines religion differently, that religion is heartfelt, and it's whatever we uh, ascribe as ultimate, right? So it could be we could worship the God of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or God as Muhammad presented him, or we could be worshiping sex or money or power. It's whatever we sort of absolutize and love, trust, and obey. So, you know, as I see it, when we um, take a look, for example, at a, at a religious candidate, at a presidential candidate, they always ask the question, you know, um, does it matter that candidate's faith? And so my response usually is threefold. You do want to look at their professed faith, right? Do they profess to be a Christian or a Muslim or an atheist? But then on a second level, you want to ask, are there ways of telling what that person actually ascribes ultimacy to? Um, sexual pleasure, uh, money and wealth, power, um, success. And in that level, that's a functional God. Uh, and no matter what a person professes, you know, there's these functional gods that vie for our obedience. Even for, for us on this stage, you know, we've got these, these gods that vie. And, and then I also think that political ideologies, all of the modern political ideologies, uh, idolatry uh, lurks beneath the surface. You know, for socialism, it would be that God would be material equality. Uh, for um, liberalism with a capital L, you know, it would be uh, liberty, um, in, in wrongly viewed. For nationalism, it's the nation. For conservatism, social conservatism, it's conserving some golden era of the past. Social progressivism, some golden era in the future, and so forth. And you so, have a good article on that at ERLC.org, <laughs> which is everybody yeah. should look at and read lays those out very helpfully. Yeah, yeah thank you uh, for that. So, I mean, wh wh what are your thoughts on that? Um, uh, let me pose it as a question. Often, you know, you've seen this on the talk shows. Uh, somebody took on uh, Dr. Moore on this on television, and we've seen it in the news. Are, are we voting for a pastor-in-chief or a commander-in-chief? Or is there a third option? Anyone take this one? <clears throat> Well, I, th I think it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned the, the question that is still often consistently posed to uh, candidates, namely questions about their faith and um, where is it from, where do they derive their moral imperatives, their mm -hmm. views, the things that kind of drive their lives. And I think that hinges on the point that, I mean, people recognize that um, at some point you are appealing to a set of principles, a set of beliefs that uh, you're living out, right? And so there's uh, a link that cannot be severed between belief and behavior. And I think people want to get at that. You know, are, is it uh, science? Is, are, are you a humanist? Are you ascribing, you know, just high ideals and what humanity can accomplish? What, what kind of drives your behavior? And I think uh, to a question like, uh, are we voting in a pastor uh, or a, a commander? I mean, I, I think, I mean, questions often are the most unhelpful the way they're phrased. But I yeah. think what we're getting at is that, that question of where are you deriving yeah. your moral principles from that are going to drive whatever administration that you are seeking to put in place that will contain uh, a whole host of issues directed, uh, related to yeah. morality, related to policy. And so, no, we're not, you know, there's an elder board trying to decide on a pastor yeah. according to First Timothy 3, but it is saying that, you know, there are uh, certain ideals, uh, we hope, that are uh, at least reasonable, uh, that are driving your uh, desire for this particular political office. Uh, because uh, you, you can't separate those two things, right? You can't say that I have my own set of beliefs, yep. but I'm not going to use any of those in my administration, right? They're going to find their way in because you live out your worldview. Yeah, you know, so presidential candidate, we don't expect them to be able to preside over the Lord's Supper, or preach, like you were saying. But there is this cocktail, 
you know, of, uh, you may have a presidential candidate who professes to be a Christian, but his God is uh, sex money, gods are sex money and power, and he ascribes to some sort of uh, idolatrous ideology, say nationalism, and that's a pretty wicked cocktail. That makes the question a lot less simple, you know, more complex and so much more interesting, you know, when you're assessing a candidate. What's even harder is we can't read their hearts. Yeah, there's a, you know. there's a really good book on this. Um, probably nobody's ever heard of it, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, he basically, he basically opens the book by talking about these, uh, you know, he's been sent a book by the two young English schoolmasters, um, and, uh, and they're examining uh, where someone has looked at a waterfall and said, this waterfall is sublime right? And uh, the two young schoolmasters informed the students reading their book, uh, no, uh, all he is saying is that the waterfall gave him sublime feelings, or he has sublime feelings about the, about the waterfall, uh, that essentially uh, any attempt to kind of give objective value to anything like this uh, is a failure, right? Well, all we can do is talk about our emotions, and it's just a big emotional, you know, cocktail. Um, and and what Lewis is saying is, is that, is that look, it's fine. You know, you can, you can engage in debunking of that type. Uh, but ultimately, people who debunk, people who try to, you know, push out the Christian faith, it's not, it's not for a clean sweep so that there'll be nothing, right? It is, it is for a program of their own. Uh, but, the, but the problem is, is that that debunking is like a universal acid, right? It eats through the test tube, it eats through the counter, it eats through the floor, uh, and it never stops. Uh, and so if there is no, if you, if you kind of come to the position there is no foundation, then it's just a matter of power, right? If you want to know what postmodernism is about, postmodernism is about the idea that everything is settled by power. Uh, and to me, you know, that's what, that's what worries me about one of our presidential candidates is I think that he's kind of saying... You know, it's about the power, and I'm good at the power thing. I mean, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So, I, I was just saying, also related to this is, you know, tied to this question about uh, the moral character or the impetus yeah. behind someone's political campaign. I mean, be, effectively, right, what, what they are seeking to advance is a certain view of what is good for yeah. the common people, right? Yep. And so that obviously is going to then reflect back on these kind of deep questions of yeah. uh, moral imperatives, et cetera. I mean, so when you are talking about human flourishing, you know, mm -hmm. what is best for uh, humanity, I mean, these things are, are going to be inextricably linked to um, that worldview. So, Stephen, let me ask you this. We've, uh, we're all in agreement that uh, a person's, you know, what a person ascribes ultim ultimacy to, God or, or whatever else affects the way we act and the way we speak and what we believe. Let's talk about Christian demeanor and disposition. Yeah. So uh, what do you see out there? What are, the, what are some unhealthy demeanors and dispositions that Christians are sort of acting out in the public square? And what would you sure. say, say in response? What is the, the more excellent way? Yeah, I mean, I, from different vantage points, I see different things. I have a vantage point, obviously, from Congress and the Hill. Um, but even at the local level, um, yeah, there's obviously a lot of anger um, out there and uh, mixed in with some opinions. Um, I, I think it is, is helpful. I'm always trying to remind, the, particularly the Christian, of the kind of meta-narrative that is encompassing the narratives that we are living in right now in this particular cultural context. And so um, I, I think the creation, fall, redemption, rest, restoration, it's always helpful to remind ourselves about that as we seek to engage at this particular moment with things that we're very passionate about. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that narrative helps to temper some of the, the, the unhelpful and maybe un, unbiblical uh, emotive responses. Um, I, I've seen uh, for, uh, for a while now, I think, an, an unhealthy conflation of uh, individuals' Christians' identity with their political ideology, right? I, I think, as we've often said, those two things have... Uh, complementary interests. Uh, they dovetail at several points, but I'm often reminding Christians of the necessity of keeping those things distinct and making sure that one is driving the other and the right one is driving the other. Um, and that, that has a whole host of implications, right, in how you yeah. reflect in the, in the public and how you talk about the competing views, right? If you've, yeah. you've tied your political <coughs> belief and ideology and, and as sacrosanct, you made it sacrosanct and you've made it 
uh, the Christian position on what mm-hmm. on taxes or whatever, mm-hmm. um, th- then that obviously is going to reflect in your Facebook comment yeah. and somebody yeah. who disagrees with you, right? Because be, yeah. it would be sadly ironic, wouldn't it, for us to speak a Christian message or what we yeah. think is a Christian message in the public square, but to speak it in a profoundly unchristian manner. Sure. Yeah. You know. Right. Um, let me let me address our okay. posture. Um, okay. The. Uh, one thing that's big right now is, uh, and has been for a number of years, has been to make this argument that the, the founding of the United States uh, is a, you know, kind of thoroughly Christian affair, right? You know, everybody's, everybody's an evangelical Christian uh, founded in the United States. I think, I think that's a mistake. I also think it's a mistake to argue that we have a godless constitution. I mean, I think that neither of those things is true. Um, it's clearly a mixed bag, some of the more prominent ones being, being godless, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin. Um, that having been said, <clears throat> let's assume that we just totally accept that the United States is founded um, by Christians, founded as a Christian republic, you know, the whole thing. Let's grant the entire argument, okay? If we do, uh, does that mean that we were granted uh, a lease on the, on the country forever that everybody has to observe, right? Right. Was there, is there a binding contract that every American citizen henceforth has to observe? The answer is that it, there's not, right? They don't have to. And so I think that in a sense, when we kind of keep pursuing them and saying, it's a Christian nation, it's a Christian, it's almost like we're a boyfriend stalking the girl who left, who left him, right? You know, we, we have... We have to, you know, but, but, but wait, you know, we got to stop doing that, right? Yeah. You know, and realize that we're, that we're in a different situation yeah. uh, in terms of the way we, we talk to them uh, and the way that we try to, to win them over. I, th- I think another, another element in this, at our church in Washington, D.C., we have people from both sides of the aisle, yeah. politically speaking. And uh, I teach a, a Sunday school class, Christians in Government, and, and one of the things that we talk about in the class is giving a kind of benefit of the doubt to people on the other side and, and has seen Christians on both sides of the political aisle, you see this, you see that people coming from both sides are animated by certain principles of justice. And you will be a better advocate for your side, if, 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 if we're going to use the phrase, if you stop, listen, give the benefit of the doubt to the other side and think, okay, they're not just awful, horrible people who are trying to destroy yeah, things. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm going to assume that, and I'm going to assume that a certain principles of justice are animating them, and I'm going to serve them, I'm going to serve my side, I'm going to serve the country if I listen long enough to try to understand and empathize right. to whatever principles of justice are, are animating them. And I think that'll contribute to a better conversation. It'll make me a better advocate for everybody in that case. So I, I, I would start just by giving understanding common grace, that God works even amidst our political enemies or advocates, and let that condition how we approach the conversation. So I've written a couple of little pieces recently that basically promoted civility instead of incivility. So the basic response to that in the comment strings, these were in national outlets, not Christian blogs, were four-letter words. And, uh, and but, but if you peel the poetry away. Uh, the comments basically said this, you, politics is for p- people who are tough. Take your little Christian virtues and, and get out of our way. You got you to be tough. Can you be tough, a tough politician, tough as nails, who uh, pushes an agenda through and yet has a Christian demeanor and disposition? Is, it, is, is, that, a, is, a, is that an oxymoron or is that a contradiction in terms? being able to le- really speak it as it is and yet do it in a Christian manner. Let's use a word like, um, maybe instead of tough, like sober. Um, the, I think about um, Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, one of his, <clears throat> one of his contributions to uh, Christian thinking about politics, uh, this relates to what Jonathan was saying, is that, is that at all times when you are interacting with politics, you need to realize that uh, this is a fallen world. You are a fallen person. The person you're interacting with is a fallen person. You know, that there is, there is sin here, right? Uh, and so there's, there's always the opportunity to kind of to misjudge a situation for that reason. I mean, even if we go to, to Plato or Aristotle, we're still going to get this, this idea that 
uh, a man is a bad judge in his own case, right? Mm -hmm. And so, to some extent, um, a person who is, you know, we might say tough-minded or sober-minded is going to realize, right, that this is the situation that we're in, right? And so that I never need to get uh, too puffed up or triumphalistic, uh, but instead kind of very sober-minded, very deliberate, uh, and, and probably philosophic uh, okay. and charitable yeah. in the way that we go forward. So, uh, Jonathan, I've got two questions for you. We're going to have to be fairly concise. Time's getting away from us. And then we're going to transition after these two questions to policy issues. And I'm going to um, ask each of you uh, questions on a couple policy issues. Um, Jonathan, what about politics from the pulpit? You for it or against it? Uh, depends on what you mean. In one sense, every time we get up and proclaim the gospel and that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, you're making a political yeah. claim. You're saying he is judge yeah. of the nations, yeah. right? So in one sense, and that's part of what I talk about in the book, everything the church does is yeah. political because we're saying king over everything, yeah. Yeah. right? Uh, if you're asking the question, the more specific question of this candidate, that candidate, this proposition, that proposition, well, then I don't think pastors have the authority uh, to discriminate, certainly on moral issues, what Robert Benet helpfully calls straight line issues, biblical principle, policy application, it's a straight line, abortion is evil, murder, murder's wrong, abortion's wrong, yeah, straight line issue. But most of it is what he calls a jagged line issue, in which we're dealing with implications of implications from the biblical principle. And there, I just don't think pastors have the authority. So, you know, I agree uh, completely. And an interesting question is, does there come a situation in which, you know, an exceptional circumstance in which you do politic from the pulpit in the way that you just said we shouldn't? For example, if we, you know, an obvious example, if a Mussolini or a Hitler were running for president in the United States. And the way Bart handled that, you know, in one of his famous sermons was that he preached that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not uh, without naming Hitler. But it was very clear that he was talking about Hitler. Does there ever come a time, you think, to do something like that? With a from, from sitting a pulpit, leader? From a pulpit. A candidate or a sitting leader? Yeah. yeah. Does it ever get bad enough so that you, that you feel you can draw a direct line from Scripture to the candidate and say, sure. no? Sure. Uh, I think that falls into the wisdom bucket, mm -hmm. which is to say, in extreme cases, yes. Yeah. But I think it's got to be pretty clear because politics by its very nature is, is the realm of people who disagree, coming, working together, having compromises. It's a realm of co-belligerence. And it's necessarily going to be sort of strategic wisdom questions that I'm called to adjudicate when I'm stepping in and voting for this candidate or that candidate. And again, I just don't think pastors on the whole, generally, most of the time, yeah. have the authority right. to burden the conscience with my particular political calculation. My, my political yeah. calculation for this instead of that candidate might be right, but it might be wrong. So I'm not going to attach Jesus' name, which is what I'm doing as a pastor, to right. my particular That's political right. calculation. Really quickly, before we go to policy, uh, different questions of public policy, why does ecclesiology matter for politics? Why does church discipline, church membership, why does the Lord's Supper, why do, why do these things matter for politics? Yeah, fundamentally because the church is, I think, the contrast society, the outpost of the kingdom that presents the nations with a true picture of righteousness and justice. Hey, nations, you know what the justice and righteousness looks like that you're going to be called, judged by? Look to the church. And so the most important political thing the church can do, and I'm, here I'm quoting some others, uh, is, is be the church. Yeah. That's the most powerful political thing we can do is to be a righteous, set-off, salty, light people. Yeah. And membership and discipline helps set up and present that model to the nations. Where could we do some further reading on that topic? Political Church, coming out <laughs> next month. Long, That's right. tedious, yeah. and excellent. Yeah. So uh, joking aside, I, I can't wait to read, to, uh, read, read the book in print format. All right. Um, so let's do policy issues. This is sort of lightning round for us. We've got about 10 minutes left at the most. Um, so I'm going to name a policy issue. I'm going to start with uh, Stephen in just a moment with <coughs> abortion, and we're going to work down through some policy issues. Just tell me whatever's on your mind. No Can we say I don't necessarily know? structure to it. Hmm? Can I say I don't know? You are welcome to say you don't know, but okay. I, somehow I don't think uh, that that's going to happen. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, Stephen, uh, abortion. How how should a Christian view this uh, sort of very, you know very difficult issue? of, uh, you know, we're speaking about the unborn, whether or not their life should be taken in the womb. And we're also speaking it to many people who have had an abortion. Almost everybody's had a family member or a friend who's had an abortion. How do you address this topic when someone 
um, brings it up, say, at a, at a dinner table? What, what would you say? Where yeah. do you stand on it? Yeah, yeah I, I think it's, it's certainly right and, and necessarily uh, so to abhor abortion. Um, uh, the womb is a divine domain. It's God's territory. And uh, ever since 1973, on-demand abortion has been law of the land, and we've seen the millions of, of, of murders that has resulted because of that. Um, again, it's also important to put that within a context of uh, a redemptive historical narrative that we understand, right? And so even for that individual sitting across from me at a table, uh, dinner table, or at Starbucks who has had a pro closer proximity to this uh, than mm -hmm. others, um, there is a way to reflect that abhorrence um, at sin and also reflect the grace yeah. of God in Jesus Christ, right, and show how those two are compatible. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's current uh, battles that are ongoing right now because of uh, this issue and particularly related to the Affordable Care Act and the HHS, HHS mandate. Uh, so religious liberty concerns are, are going to be, I think, ongoing here uh, recently with Hobby Lobby, upcoming at the end of next month with Little Sisters of the Poor, um, there, there, there's just this ongoing drive to push back against this darkness, and I think that that is right. Um, but I think even beyond the kind of federal level push, um, there's so much that can be done at the local and at the individual level, right? I mean, that, I think we often miss that, um, how you deal with uh, young women in your congregation, showing hospitality to, to, to pregnant mothers who uh, find themselves in what they would call crisis uh, situations, really understanding the intersections of uh, experiential realities that might move someone to consider something that goes against their own conviction. I think there's a pastoral level at which you have to address that and understand the real tensions there and then to work out of, out of those tensions in the gospel framework. So I think you, you can do all yeah. those things. That was good stuff. You're going to want to, if you're watching this recorded, you want to hit rewind there and, and uh, play that again. Just, just real quick about okay. abortion. The I think that abortion is is not even a hard issue. I think that I think that what makes it hard is that uh, is that we encounter abortion in a moment of crisis. I'll give you an example. Um, years ago, maybe the first first or second year married, my wife and I are out walking in a neighborhood. Suddenly, hear a very vicious sounding dog growling. My first instinct, right? You know, I'm going to I'm going to run, and my wife yells out, don't leave me, okay? You know, <laughs> I'm about to take off, right? And, and so suddenly I realized, right, you know, that, that it's not just about me kind of preserving myself, right? I need to do the right thing, right? And the same thing years ago, Virginia Tech college shooting. Mm -hmm. One of the professors, old man, Holocaust survivor, he throws himself against the door. He keeps the shooter out while his students get out the window. He's ultimately killed. Why? He knows who he is. He knows the right thing before the crisis happens, mm. right? Yeah. And so in terms of our moral reasoning as the church, we need to realize we, what is it, what do we know about it before it ever happens to us? And then when the crisis happens, you'll know what to do. Oh, that's good. Same-sex marriage, for it or against it. Why? <laughs> I'm against it. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <coughs> now, you know, the, uh, but let me say, Bruce, that I think I occupied a little bit of a unique position during this debate because I have never been that worried about gay marriage as gay marriage. I mean, there's, uh, I, it's, 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 my prediction has been that actually it will not turn out to be a huge phenomenon um, and that we will not see a huge number of marriages, uh, if for no other reason there are a lot of tax disadvantages uh, to doing it. But, <laughs> but nevertheless, I don't think there's going to be a lot. What I was always worried about was what will be the impact on religious liberty. Because I knew that as soon as the Supreme Court ruled favorably on gay marriage, then uh, the, the entire secular world was going to make the analogy that the same-sex marriage debate is exactly like the civil rights debate, right? Yeah. And that's where we are now. And uh, that's what I'm worried about, and that's unfolding. And the, the fifth vote for religious liberty just yeah. died. So yeah, so yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. <laughs> Religious liberty, uh, you know, is um, the implications are, are pretty big there. I do think it's important that, that there's a redefinition of a creation ordinance, and I, yeah, I assume yeah. you agree with me there. Yeah. You just would say that the religious liberty implications are so severe that that sort of trumps the redefinition. Yeah. To me, those those are the more severe consequences in terms of the society, okay. right? Yeah. Because I mean, look, um, 
Yes, I mean, we, we believe that, that uh, men marrying men or women marrying women is a sin. Um, but it's also the fact that, that we have thought all of, this, all of these other things that have happened in the sexual revolution are also sins, yep. right? But they have, not, they have not threatened the church and Christians in the same way that this does. Yep. Uh, one more policy issue, and then I'm going to throw you all for a loop, and we're actually going to—I'm going to ask you to recommend some resources for being uh, keeping informed in politics and public life. Um, so, uh, Stephen, how should we as Christians view the sort of racial unrest that we've got right now in the United States? We just so many incidences have come to light, disturbing incidents, uh, Ferguson, Charleston, and a number of others, and. Um, and uh, so Black Lives Matter movement, and then you have a number of people who immediately, instead of affirming that Black Lives Matter, affirm that all lives matter, you know, without saying that Black Lives Matter. We've got to be concise here, but counsel our students at Southeastern Seminary, whoever's live streaming, yeah. um, Christian evangelicals, but especially white evangelicals, give us some counsel. What should yeah. we be saying? What should we be doing? What should we be believing? Yeah, this is lightning round, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, th- I think yeah. the most helpful thing to say in the interest of time is um, being at an institution of learning, I think, particularly for white evangelical brothers and sisters, I think this is a good area where um, exuding a posture of humility and student uh, would be helpful. So when you look at the number of cases that have causes, caused uproars over the past couple of years, whether it's in Charleston, whether it's in Missouri, whether it's in New York, um, understanding that for the black community, and I don't want to speak in terms of a monolith because it's certainly not, um, but it is in this sense that the community, uh, we're going to assess these things in the context of a narrative, right, that, that, that this, this transatlantic diasporic narrative that has resulted in uh, these realities that we're facing today. And so when there is a particular instance, right, the community is going to assess that instance and respond to that instance. We can critique it all, all we want. I think there might be some due criticism there, but understanding why uh, there is going to be a conjuring of this narrative, right? And so it is interpreted within the context of, of that narrative that, that, that has kind of binded the community together. Uh, and so for, for my white evangelical brothers and sisters, I, I, would, I would recommend and, and just really encourage just a posture of humility, uh, a posture of student uh, certainly at an institution of education, there, there is an array of resources, things to be read in terms of history, things that have been uh, written in our contemporary context. Um, understanding that um, while you might not agree with how a particular instance is negotiated and interpreted and understood, uh, but that these are fellow image bearers, uh, our African-American brothers and sisters image bearers that we want to identify with, we want to understand the story, <coughs> Uh, and we want to ultimately um, share in that, that pain, right? We want to be uh, individuals who walk alongside uh, each other uh, in that pain. So, so, yeah, I would encourage just for students here, um, you know, get to reading, uh, ask questions, uh, but really exude that posture of humility. You know, I want to go on record. Can I jump in here? Yeah, and I want to jump in too. May I jump in also? Yeah, your panel, man. Your panel. <laughs> no, I, you know, I want to go on record for a minute and just say that when something awful happens to the black community, that white even, and, and the black community says, you know, black lives matter. The white community doesn't need to jump in and say, yeah, yeah, but all lives matter, so you should be a Republican and be pro-life. You know, in that moment, maybe you can just say, you know what, black lives do matter, and leave it there, and emphasize that. You've been saying all lives matter for your whole life, so why don't you in the moment say black lives matter? That's, that, that's an important uh, message. And that's something that irked me is that people couldn't stop in the moment and say black lives matter to God. What were you gonna, I was, was going to say something similar, which is this. One of, the, one, of, one of Satan's greatest victories, I think, in dividing the body of Christ is somehow fabricating the system where, where African-American Christians tend to move to the political left and, and white evangelicals tend to move to the political right. And any time... Um, somebody says something like Black Lives Matter or an African-American stands up and advocates something, white evangelicals kind of pounce and say, you can't do that because that's, yeah. that's this. Yeah. To which my response is, okay, white evangelicals, what are you doing to advocate yeah. for yeah. the African-American? Yeah. Yeah. So why, why if, if, if you do have a problem with 
this candidate or, or this movement for these reasons, and maybe those are legitimate concerns, maybe not, but are you offering an alternative? Are, are you showing political yeah. empathy and, and advocating on behalf of the body of Christ? 2016 election cycle. Uh, you hardly ever see the Republican candidates talking about race relations. No, that's, it's just that's silent, exactly as point. if it's not an important that's matter. Right. Foot, footnote here. I, um, I, and this, yeah, we're out of time now. We're running out of time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, to, to, to two points really quickly. The, the Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter issue has been very curious to me. It's a riddle that people have just found very difficult to solve. And I don't think it's that difficult. Well, historically and in the present, of the affirmation of Black Lives Matter has undergirded and made even more legitimate the claim that all lives matter, right? So putting those two in tension as if they're contradictory, I just find that really curious. So historically and in the contemporary context, when there is a community under duress and affirming that that particular community matters actually upholds the claim that all life matters. To affirm all life matters in contradiction to that community under duress actually delegitimizes your claim. So you're actually working against Mm -hmm. what you're saying. Um, to the other point that you just mentioned, I mean, after the first round of debates on each side, I looked at one of my colleagues, and, I, and it was just an admission of, kind of matter-of-fact admission. I said, you know, the, the Democratic platform, uh, for whatever you believe about it, I said they've, won, they've yeah. once again, by and large, won the yeah. black vote. He said, well, well why? You know, why is that the case? I said, R-A-C-E. I said it's not mentioned yeah. on the other side. Now, whether you feel like it, yep. it should be mentioned or that it should be assumed to be included in the platform, whatever. I mean, I've long yeah. since said that the Republican Party has not articulated a yeah. vision of conservatism that meets, uh, that is proven yeah. to meet the particular needs that uh, uh, marginalized communities face. But uh, yeah, that, the just absence and silence there has yeah. just not been helpful. And so... For individuals who are trying to be advocates and trying to win over, I mean, that, that's something that you just have to address, right? It's not, it's a four-letter word. I mean, I, it, it doesn't hurt to say, well, it does hurt some candidates to say it, I guess that's why they don't say it. Yeah. So our time is up. We've got like one minute. And uh, let me just say this. If you want to, if you want to keep informed and uh, 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 let me make several recommendations, I would recommend, joking aside, that you buy the books that these men have written, that you read what Stephen writes and produces at ERLC. Another habit that I've got when I come in the office in the morning after I do quiet time, I do read the politics and opinion sections of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and Fox News. Those are three different, very different perspectives. New York Times, far left, Fox News, far right, Wall Street Journal, sort of to the right. And so it's just a way of being in the conversation. You can do it in 10 minutes or you can do it in 30 minutes, whatever time you've got. Um, but more, more importantly than anything, be immersed in God's Word and be praying for God to give you wisdom how to speak and, and act in a way that pleases the Lord. Any further resources that you guys would mention? Your book, One Nation Under I'm, God. Well, I'm not against that. <laughs> Short, little, helpful, yeah. concise presentation. I think yeah. Russ Moore's Onward is very helpful. Yeah. I've yeah. Just, I'm just in the process of finishing that. Really pleased with how good that is. Robert Benet's Good and Bad Ways to Think About Politics and Religion mm-hmm. is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to those that have been said, I mean, Mark Noll has, uh, it's kind of dated, but I think it's still relevant, a, kind of a primer on the intersections of race, religion, and yep. politics. Uh, the, any kind of reading you can do in the history of American religion uh, showing the kind of tensions between religion and politics uh, I think has contemporary relevance. So, And the ERLC website. Yeah. Excellent, excellent resource. Well, men, thank you very much uh, for helping us to address the relationship of Christianity, politics, and public life. We're so happy to have you here at Southeastern. We hope you won't be a stranger to our campus. Uh, thank you. And uh, we are adjourned. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost dying world. Your gifts will help to train more and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.